This week's edition of Worcester Talking News, brought to you by Worcester News and Equipment for the Blind, with permission of the Worcester News, and recorded on Thursday, the 9th of January 2020, here at Colin Chance House, Worcester. I'm Evelyn Brock, editor for this edition, and with me to read the articles are Paddy Fellows. Julian Jules Watkins mm. and Dil- Dilwyn Dill Porter. Mm. Our sound engineer is Barry Hurd, and our admin team are mm. Clerical mm. Carol Hartle, Joe Gwynn, and Jean Burbeck, mm. and copiers Duncan Wynne and myself. A warm mm. welcome to all mm. listeners, especially new ones. I hope everyone enjoys our offering. In addition to news items, you will hear some useful telephone numbers, readers' letters, birthdays, on this day, and thought for the week. Obituaries are still included, but following listeners' requests a while ago, nowadays are placed in a different spot, following the closing music. So, if you wish to hear them, please stay tuned at that point. Don't forget, recordings are also available on podcast. But a reminder that at present, talking books are not available on memory sticks, but on CDs and tape. Also, do let us know your birthdays, so that we can greet you specially when the time comes. This service is free to users, but if you would like to make a voluntary donation, it can be sent to Colin Chance House, Wilds Lane, Worcester, WR5 1DA. We do like hearing from you, and a message can be left on our answer phone. Worcester, that's 01905 767 766, or you can add a note to your wallet. We ask listeners that if there's any problem at all with any aspect of your receiving recordings, please use that answer phone number I've just given and leave a message to that effect. Well, first of all, something really pleasant birthdays for this week and we have in the coming week Julie Lloyd, Brenda Doe and Margaret May and a happy birthday to those three people. Have a lovely day when it comes. Now thought for the week. Dill will you read that for us please? Certainly. Uh, This is from Isaiah 40, verses 6 to 8. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Thank you, Dill. Now some 
useful telephone numbers. First of all, out of hours medical help, 6 to 8 p.m., 0300-1233-211. NHS, non-emergency, 111. Worcester Live, that's the Swan Theatre, Huntingdon Hall and the Henry Sandon Hall, Worcester 611427. Malvern Theatre, 01684892277. Worcester Hub for Council Matters. Worcester 765765 or 72233. Crime Stoppers 0800 one. And lastly, Samaritans 116123, which is a free phone number. Well, now I'll ask the team to introduce themselves as they read the week's headline articles. So I'll start from Friday, January the 3rd. The headline, Families New Year's Eve Fight Forces Pub to Shut. <laughs> A pub had to close after three fights, reportedly all involving the same family, broke out there during New Year's Eve celebrations. The Red Lion in Holt Heath, in the north of Worcester, was closed on January the 1st due to fights that happened in the early hours of New Year's Day with the landlady saying that she and two other members of staff were injured and that damage was caused to the pub. One victim of an assault had to be taken to hospital after suffering injuries described as serious. Pub landlady Kate Stacy said that the family involved has been dealt with by the police, in a statement she posted on Facebook. A spokesperson for West Mercia Police said, We were called to reports of a disturbance at a pub on Whitley Road at Holt Heath on January the 1st at just after 12.30am. A number of assaults were reported and officers attended. Our investigations into this incident are ongoing. An ambulance also attended the scene to treat a victim. A West Midlands Ambulance Service spokesman said, We received reports of an assault at the Red Lion at 12.43am on New Year's Day. We sent one ambulance to the scene and treated a man who had been assaulted. His injuries were serious, but not life-threatening. He was then transferred to the Alexandra Hospital in Redditch. Following the incident, landlady Kate Stacy, 43, issued this statement on Facebook. Stephen and I would just like to apologise to our guests for the three fights that broke out this evening, just after New Year's celebrations. The family involved has been dealt with by the police and an ambulance crew. This is not 
how we wanted our first New Year's Eve celebration to end. I should think not. We are in a state of shock over what has happened, and due to the state of my pub and injuries sustained to Stephen, Sarah, and myself, the pub will remain closed on January the first, twenty twenty. I hope you're all okay, and again we are sorry you were involved in this. Kate declined to comment further when contacted by the Worcester News. She and Stephen took over the Red Lion on October the eighth. This is Dill Porter, and I'm reading the front page story from the Worcester News on Monday, the sixth of January. Another court case. Headline, Man Strangled Disabled Lover. A drunk carer strangled his lover while screaming he should have died in the house fire that left him disabled. James Band admitted assaulting his disabled partner in a hate crime attack in Worcester, leaving finger marks on his neck and the taste of blood in his mouth. The 21-year-old of Nelson Rose St John's admitted common assault in Worcester on the 8th of June last year when he appeared before city magistrates on Thursday. Kerry Lovegrove, prosecuting, said Band and his victim had been in a relationship for about 18 months at the time of the assault. Band moved into the victim's address to help him with his disability. He describes how, after about six months, the relationship changed to become violent, said Miss Lovegrove. Both men had been drinking at a friend's house in Worcester. Band told the victim to go upstairs to bed, but he refused, and this made the defendant angry. Miss Lovegrove described how Band used a nerve in the man's arm to paralyse him temporarily. He grabbed him round the throat and began to strangle him, shouting, Your mum and dad should have killed you in that house fire and that he was worthless, said Miss Lovegrove. Friends removed Ban from the scene. The victim was described as struggling to breathe and could taste blood every time he swallowed. The victim said it took three or four days for his throat to feel normal again. Since the incident, Ban has refused to cancel his carer's allowance for assisting the victim, said Miss Lovegrove. In a victim personal statement, the man said he had finger marks on his neck which lasted a week, suffered from mental health problems and had been diagnosed with depression and suicidal tendencies. Miss Lovegrove said the victim had suffered significant burns and said it was an aggravating feature that this was mentioned by Band, arguing for an uplift in any sentence on the grounds that this was a disability hate crime. She also argued that the assault was further aggravated by its domestic context. Band had no previous convictions. Band, who represented himself at the hearing, said, I've had a difficult childhood. I'm now sorting out counselling to help myself and to see why I reacted how I have. I'm really sorry about what I did to him. I do hope me and him can sort things out. Magistrates adjourned the sentencing hearing until the 27th of January. This hearing will take place at Redditch Magistrates Court. Band was granted unconditional bail until then. Magistrates said they were thinking of a high-level community order, but they did not wish to tie the hands of the sentencing bench, which means that all options remain open, including the possibility of a prison sentence. Right, 
Well, I'm Paddy Fellows and I am about to read the headline from Tuesday, January the 7th, which says, Former Staff Blast, City Care Provider. Former staff have spoken out about a care company after a watchdog's damning inspection report. The Care Quality Commission says Ignite Health and Home Care Service, based in Lowesmore Terrace, requires improvement. Two ex-members of staff told the Worcester News that Ignite is terrible. However, a spokesman for the company said delivering a safe and excellent service is our priority. Dawn Houseman worked as a carer from August until November last year until she was sacked for having a criminal record, despite having explained her jail time during her interview, she alleges. She said, I told them I have a criminal record and that I was in jail for assault. I've never done care before. Some of the clients had not been washed and there was poo in places where it shouldn't be. It was terrible. Can you imagine leaving your grandparents and seeing them in this state? The 49-year-old from Worcester added, I absolutely loved my job. I was heartbroken when I was sacked. I love being able to give something back to people. You don't realise how many people are out there who haven't got anybody in their life. Some of them can be most caring and lovely people. Miss Houseman claims that she only completed half a day of shadowing another member of staff, which is where she followed a colleague during their shift as part of her training before she was then put on a shift of her own. With no previous caring experience, Miss Houseman alleges she worked from 5.30am till 11.30pm without a break for five shifts in a row. The care company in Lowesmore Terrace was inspected on October 22nd 2019 as a result of concerns that had been highlighted. The CQC report was published on December 28th and said Ignite requires improvement. Another Ignite ex-employee who wished to be anonymous worked at the company for over a year. She said she was forced to work despite having chickenpox. The 40-year-old from Worcester said, I was begging them for a night off as I hadn't slept and I was so tired. I have a very bad heart condition and the person I was working with didn't feel safe with me driving and they still wouldn't come and help. Carers have left clients with poo up their backs in places that are supposed to be clean I had four clients tell me that when I clean them, it's the best. It doesn't happen in the day. The Care Quality Commission report said, We received concerns in relation to the management of people's calls, staff training and staff recruitment checks. The overall rating for the service has deteriorated to requires improvement. This is based on the findings at this inspection. We found new staff were not always fully trained and had their competencies checked 
before they administered medicines to people. Ignite, which is a care at home service for people aged 65 and over, received its previous rating in June 2019 and was marked as good. A spokesman for the company said, At Ignite Health and Home Care Service, we adhere to a very stringent recruitment process for all new starters. We carry out DBS checks. We obtain a minimum of two references, professional and character references. We also ensure all mandatory training is completed and the three-day shadowing shifts are undertaken. Ignite believes in giving people second chances, particularly those who may have criminal convictions. Sadly, some people may have made poor decisions in their youth. In such an instance, we carefully consider each prospective worker individually by carrying out a thorough risk assessment on all candidates with positive DBS and putting a plan in place to mitigate any potential risk. One of the ways we manage such a situation is to ensure that all candidates with a positive DBS are placed on a double uprun and not singles. The dismissal of a worker is not undertaken lightly. It is often used in instances of gross misconduct to safeguard the vulnerable people who use our service. Ignite Health and Home Care Limited operates a family-friendly service that takes into account flexibility around the parents with young children. Ignite has a range of systems to monitor quality, which includes spot checks, service user feedback, electronic monitoring, staff supervision, monthly staff meetings and reviews. There are systems in place to support workers to report any concerns, <coughs> especially around the health and welfare of our clients. Part of the training induction supervision gives clear guidelines how to report any concerns they may have in regards to the service user's welfare. Any concerns regarding the service user's welfare should be escalated without delay to managers, team leaders and care cooperators. No, coordinators, sorry. Mm. Now from Wednesday, January the 8th, a positive lead story. Headline, I didn't think I'd ever cope without Harry. I didn't think I would ever be able to cope without him, but I know he'd be proud of me for all I have achieved since he's been gone. Those are the words of a woman who lost her husband when she was just 48, who has told the Worcester News how she found new purpose in helping other widows. Ruth Rowlands of Worcester was widowed on November the 12th, 2013, when her husband Harry died aged 70. She told the Worcester News, I met Harry at work in 1987. He was the boss, I was his secretary. Very stereotypical, but I fell in love with him the minute I saw him. We were both married at the time. In 1992, his wife died, and my own marriage crumbled shortly after. 
1996, we moved in together, and the next year we married. It was a lovely day. Our reception was held in the restaurant where Harry had proposed. We were married for 15 years. 22 years my senior. Harry was the kindest, loveliest person in the world, and we had a wonderful life together. He made me feel so very loved. We travelled a lot. We enjoyed many holidays together. Harry played the bass guitar in a rock and roll band. I used to love watching him on stage from the crowd. He was just so cool. Harry was diagnosed with lung cancer in November 2010, also the year he lost his brother. Mrs Rowlands recalls, It was very tough for Harry. He had a tumour on his knee and had to undergo a knee replacement as well as chemotherapy. He was stuck in a wheelchair and became very bitter, angry and depressed. He was a very active man. He played tennis and found it very frustrating when his mobility was restricted. We tried to live our lives as normally as we could. Harry hated it when people treated him differently because he was poorly. The cancer took over his body in 2013. We set up the dining room with a bed and brought him home from hospital. He spent six days at home surrounded by friends and family. I remember the weather outside the windows being beautiful for those six days. It was really difficult. He was not well and on all sorts of medication. He withdrew from me when all I wanted him to do was tell me he loved me. I could see the sun shining through the windows in the dining room by his bed. It was beautiful. He died after six days, surrounded by me and his two children. Mrs Rowland sought comfort in the years after his death in friends she met through Widowed and Young, W-A-Y, Way, in Worcestershire, a charity which supports people under 50 who have lost their partner. You feel so alone, so totally alone, like there is no more future. It's like looking straight into a black hole, she said. The person you are supposed to be spending your life with is gone, and now you don't know what your life looks like anymore. It is not the same as losing a partner at 70. It is very hard to really empathise with the desperation you feel unless you have experienced it firsthand. Before a friend found way for me, I had been sitting rocking in a chair for months. If I hadn't joined Worcestershire Way, I would probably still be there. It has completely transformed my life. The charity gave me lifetime friends. I moved to Worcester because of these incredible friendships. Having the support of people who have been through the same experiences is so important. I am also a member of Way WOCS, Way Members Without Children. This group has given me the chance to meet so many people and has given me the confidence to go on holidays again. I'm moving forward now. My house is full of pictures of Harry and I am slowly but surely adding new pictures of my life now with my wonderful friends from Way. I didn't think I would ever be able to cope without him, 
but I know he'd be proud of me for all I've achieved since he's been gone. To find out more about Widowed and Young, visit www.widowedandyoung.org.uk. Mrs. Rowland's Way Christmas Tree to Commemorate Lost Spouses, featuring Harry on a bauble, won the People's Choice Award at the Worcester Cathedral Tree Festival last week. Mrs. Rowlands has also recently set up a support group on Facebook called Fabulous Over 40 Worcestershire. The group is open to all women over 40 and has members who are married, divorced, single and widowed. If you've been widowed at a young age and would like to share your story, email reporter Gemma Bufton at gemma.bufton at newsquest.co.uk. Well, this story is from Thursday the 9th of January. It's entitled, Council Moves to Hike Charges. The cost of hiring a football pitch, taxi licences, burying your loved ones and getting married at the Guildhall all look set to rise next year as part of the council's planned changes to fees and charges. Worcester City Council has revealed it wants to raise the cost of burials and cremations held in the city as well as change more or charge more sorry, for collecting bulky garden waste, hackney carriage and private hire taxi licences and charging more for some of its guilt or wedding packages. The council said the majority of the 2% increase were to bring prices in line with inflation. The council's all-day Gullivelt wedding package, which includes the ceremony, Breakfast and evening reception at the Guildhall would increase by £750 to £3,000. The seven-pack package, which includes breakfast and an evening reception in several of the Guildhall rooms, would increase by £40, uh, 40%, uh, 40% even, to £2,250. The higher price of a wedding at the Guildhall is due to the permanent availability of an in-house bar following a successful trial and the proposed cost of security, the council said. The cost of a burial would increase by £18 to £918, and the cost of a cremation would rise by £16 to £822. Worcester City Council has routinely ruled out increasing car parking charges and prices would remain the same next year. Parking fines would also stay the same. The Council said it expects to make around £100,000 more from the rise in fees and charges. However, the council says this will only be a 0.9% increase, largely due to its two biggest earners, car parking and garden waste collection, seeing no increases. The cost of collecting bulky garden waste is also set to rise significantly, with the council charging £10 a bag, with a five-bag minimum, an increase of 138%. Annual fees for garden waste collecting would remain at £62.50. The registration fee for setting up a direct debit would be scrapped and the cost of a second green bin will be cut in half to £31.25p. The City Council's annual fee for garden waste collection is the second highest in Worcestershire, only behind Malvern Hills District Council, which charges £72.50 a year and £14.50 more expensive than Witchhaven District Council. Fees for taxi drivers would also increase, including an £11 increase to £420 for the first-time applications for a Hackney carriage licence and a £10 increase to £360 for licence renewals. Private hire drivers would be expected to pay £390, an extra £8, for a new licence and an extra £9, pushing it up to £330 to renew from next year. The cost of a taxi operator's licence would rise by £5 to £260 for first-time applications and renewals. 
A five-year renewal would increase by £20 to £990. Block booking for adults' football pitch in Worcester would increase by £10. The cost of a new sex establishment licence would increase by £45 to £2,145. The majority of fees and charging for gambling licences would increase by around 2%, with a licence for bookies increasing to £1,887 and a bingo hall licence increasing to £2,198.10p. The cost of hiring Worcester City Art Gallery for the evening would increase by 112% on last year's price, from £330 to £700. The council said this was in order to bring it in line with charges with other similar businesses. The council's income generation subcommittee meets next Tuesday, January the 14th, to discuss the increases. Well, now we'll have a couple of sports items. So I'm going to ask Dill to read us one, which I believe is about football. It is. It's about uh, Worcester City, who are currently playing their matches at Bromsgrove Sporting. It's from the 4th of January. Um, headline, City's Landlords to Seek New Tenants. Bromsgrove Sporting has a couple of parties interested in taking over as ground share tenants from Worcester City <coughs> at the end of this season. City has an in-principle agreement to return to Worcester at Clanes Lane from the start of next season, but there's plenty of work to do to bring the Worcestershire FA-owned site up to standard. The County Association hoped to have have initial redevelopment work including a 3G pitch, floodlights and new changing and office facilities completed by the end of September 2019. Only the floodlights and a stand put in by existing tenants Worcester Raiders has been completed so far causing the West Midlands Regional League outfit to move temporarily to Nunnery Wood Sports Complex. Raiders hope to be back at Clanes Lane later this month, albeit with temporary facilities, with work set to get moving now the Worcestershire Football Association has been granted access to up to £750,000 £750, worth of loans from Worcester City Council. That work will still only bring the ground up to standard for the level below cities, and the homeless club, now in its fourth season playing from Victoria's, uh, from Sporting's Victoria ground, is responsible for undertaking any extra work. Bromsgrove chairman Mike Burke confirmed he would meet with City to discuss a contingency plan, but that any requests would have to be balanced with the club's long-term interests. Understandably, he said, they're being cautious in case the new ground doesn't go to plan. We may discuss discussed to leave open the opportunity to stay here. We'll need to know one way or another so that we can look for another tenant. If someone comes along and wants to, wants to be here for a few years, then we'll have to look at them. But I think we owe something to Worcester to give them an opportunity. It's common knowledge that Worcester plans to move on next season, and we have had inquiries over taking a tenancy. The ground may be a bit much for some smaller clubs, but there are a couple of parties that would be a good fit here. Asked where Sporting's priorities would lie, Burke replied, We'll have to see what the figures are and decide at the time. If someone wants a two or three year tenancy with us, then we would have to think of that first in the interest of our club. We want to be nice to Worcester. They've been good to us and, we want, and we, we've got on well. We'll listen to what they want to do. 
On City's plans, Burke added, it's nice for them to get back to Worcester. The fans deserve it. You are where you play and the people from top to bottom need them to go back home. We will be sad to see them go, but it happens. Things move on and change. Okay, well we have a rugby story here. In fact, it's in two parts. The first is from the earlier edition and the second part from the later edition from Wednesday, January the 8th. And it concerns uh, Michael Fasialova. The headline reads, All our support, we just want Michael to recover. And the first part is, Worcester Warriors lock, Michael Fatialofa spent a second night in St Mary's Hospital, Paddington, as his condition continued to be assessed. Fatialofa, 27, was stretched off after he became injured in a collision shortly after he came on as a replacement in Saturday's Gallagher Premiership defeat against Saracens at Alliance Park. Play was held up for 15 minutes as New Zealander Fasialofa received medical attention before he was carried away with his neck in a brace and taken to hospital. A Warriors statement last night said, We will provide a further update on Michael's condition when we have one. Mm-hmm. On behalf of Michael, we would like to thank all those who have passed on messages of support and concern. Mm-hmm. Warriors Director of Rugby, Alan Solomon, said after the game, It's a massive concern and I'm worried about it, but I haven't had a report from the hospital. The medics have taken on all precautions and done everything possible. We've contacted his partners to let her know. And this continues for the second part from the later edition. Alan Solomons lifted the lid on the worst possible week at Warriors as the rugby world anxiously awaits news on Michael Fatialofa's neck injury. The New Zealander has undergone successful surgery to alleviate bruising and swelling on his spinal cord that left him with reduced power and sensation in his arms and legs after being stretched off at Saracens on Saturday. Solomons revealed how club doctor Nick Tate had addressed the rest of the squad with Warriors keen to ensure the support network is in place for everyone, particularly Fatialofa and his loved ones. The players, staff and everyone, all our thoughts are with Michael and his family, said Solomons. It seems that the surgery was positive, but he remains in intensive care and his condition remains serious. From where I was, I couldn't see what had happened clearly, but the replay didn't look good. Full marks all the medical staff involved. They did all the right things and managed to get into hospital. He's in the hands of experts. Good hands, obviously, is not a pleasant thing. On the impact the incidents had on the players and the club as a whole of six ways, Solomon added, I think the important thing is the players have information, something they can speak to. The team doctor addressed the players first thing on Monday morning, so they were in the loop and any player he wishes to can speak to Nick. It's quite a tight group and the players have been keen to support, certainly of Michael and his family. We have spoken about it and I think the most important thing is to show Michael he has the support. You have to be sensitive to the situation and that is key. The lads have been pretty good, at the level of support so the whole family knows everyone is behind them. It has been bigger than just here at Warriors and that is what you expect from the game. Whatever Saracens do to help, they did it and it has been fantastic to see response throughout the rugby community. We just want to see Michael recover, that's all. The most travelled Warriors chief admitted the situation had been a first ever for him, but that the focus had to remain on Fatialofa's recovery. You get serious injuries that take a player out for the season, but not of this nature, he said. The biggest thing we can do is make sure he's receiving the best possible medical care which he is receiving, and that he knows he has the support of absolutely everyone at the club and the owners right down. Colin Goldring, co-owner, was at the hospital on Saturday night right through to 11. However, such is the nature of the professional sport, despite the turmoil and concern of Fasialofa's horror injury, 
Another fixture is just around the corner, with Warriors hosting Russian side NCL STM in the European Challenge Cup on Saturday, 3pm. As tough as it is, we have to continue to prepare for the match on Saturday, said Solomons. We have a responsibility to play the game and I have spoken to the players about it. It is not that we think about Michael any less. He is in our prayers, but we also have to get on with the job. Warriors are currently third in the pool, but will be confident of picking up maximum points. Thank you. Well, now, on this day, this is a dip into past times. Events that took place on this date, the 9th of January, in former years. So we go as far back as 1684 to start with. Puppet shows performed and shopping stores were set up on the Thames in London during a deep freeze. On the 9th of January 1799, brace yourselves everybody, Prime Minister William Pitt the Younger introduced income tax at two shillings in the pound to raise funds for the Napoleonic Wars. And I'm sure we all remain grateful to him for that. In 1898, on January the 9th, Gracie Fields, whose real name was apparently Grace Stansfield, was born in Rochdale. She became one of Britain's most popular entertainers and was made a dame of the British Empire in 1979. January the 9th, 1902, New York State introduced a bill to outlaw flirting in public. Shame. 1914, on the 9th of January, striptease artist Gypsy Rose Lee was born in Seattle. She became Queen of Burlesque in the 1930s and her autobiography, Gypsy, became a hit musical. 1927, January the 9th, Greta Garbo and John Gilbert, real-life lovers, shocked cinema-goers in New York by their uninhibited kissing in the silent film Flesh and the Devil. January the 9th, 1951, Life After Tomorrow, the first film to receive an X rating in Britain, opened in London. 1957, January the 9th, Anthony Eden resigned as Prime Minister in the wake of the Suez Crisis. January the 9th, 1972, the liner Queen Elizabeth, after being removed to Hong Kong to serve as a floating marine university, sank after catching fire. 1997, January the 9th, yachtsman Tony Bullimore was found alive five days after his boat capsized in the freezing wastes of the Southern Ocean. 2,200 kilometres off the coast of Australia. And on this day, 2007, Apple CEO Steve Jobs unveiled the first iPhone. And birthdays for this date include Joan Byers, the singer, 79, and the Duchess of Cambridge, aged 38.
Now some letters from the public. So I'm going to ask Paddy to start off with her one of her choices of letter. Right, here's my first one. It's from Catherine Hall of Morven and it's about hill cyclists being dangerous. Sir, following Tom Banner's articles on reckless drivers on the Morven Hills and careless dog owners, there's also the problem of reckless bikers on the Morven Hills. Biking on public authority footpaths is still legal because... It's still illegal, sorry, because it is dangerous and travelling at 35 miles an hour on two wheels down the hills, footpaths and bridleways without regard to pedestrians <clears throat> and is really dangerous. And there was ample evidence of it last year. Not every mountain biker behaves recklessly and carelessly, but a reprehensible number do. If Morven Hills Trust can join forces with West Mercia Police in the control of careless dog owners to protect livestock, then I imagine it can in the control of dangerous bikers to protect humans. And I expect she feels better when she's written that. <laughs> right, my first choice is the Fairpoint article on the letters page uh, by Sam Greenway. And it's Trump, Brexit delay and cricket, a mixed bag of 2018 predictions. I will soon be making my annual Fairpoint predictions for 2020. But before I do, I thought it was worthwhile seeing how I got on with the 2019 predictions. In my column a year ago, entitled Brexit Delay and Election Trump's Last Year, my 2019 predictions, I confidentially <coughs> made three predictions. Firstly, I forecast a Brexit delay, writing, if, as seems certain now, the vote on the PM's deal is lost next week, pushing back the deadline could be Theresa May's only option. And so it proved, as March the 31st came and went, with the deadline moved back to the infamous do-or-die October the 31st, which eventually was moved to the current deadline at the end of this month. Secondly, I was correct with my prediction of a general election, but I was wrong to forecast it would be early 2019. I did write, though, what possibly could delay this is PM May will want to hold on for as long as possible. Ultimately, a Prime Minister not controlling events and instead reacting to them is not sustainable and could lead to her downfall. This is, of course, eventually how things played out, as Mrs May officially resigned in July before a Conservative leadership contest was held and Boris Johnson became Prime Minister. My third prediction, that it would be Donald Trump's last year in office, ultimately proved an incorrect one. This time last year, I wrote I was unsure what it would be that caused the president's downfall. 
but it emerged the focus would be on charges of abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. I wrote that he would be forced to resign as, faced with impeachment, presidents will always prefer to resign. Although the impeachment took place, of course Trump hasn't resigned and knows the Republican-controlled Senate will likely back him in January. But 2020 is an election year, so who knows what will happen next. As for my sports predictions, that was very much a mixed bag. I was wrong on Liverpool Premier League champions, Champions League winners, Manchester City and Wimbledon champion Alexander Zverev. But with the Ashes being a draw and the Cricket World Cup being an England win, I did get the cricket predictions right, if I had only put money on it. Mm. Well, this is um, a short letter from Jill Paraventa, um, who's from Broadway. And she says, Sir, on Saturday last week, the 111 service and ambulance were outstanding. My husband had a heart attack and we were only 20 minutes behind the ambulance. His crew were fabulous. When I arrived at Worcestershire Royal, a team had been waiting for my husband and he was operated on immediately. The doctors, nurses and ward were absolutely wonderful and I cannot thank all the staff enough. Okay, another short letter headed Leading Question from C.D. Lee of Worcester. Sir, could the owners who let their dogs wander across footpaths please use some consideration and put them on short leads? I realise dogs need need to and like to run, so take them onto the grassed area at Pitchcroft, for example. The owners do not know where their dogs are going to wander, and neither do pedestrians, cyclists and runners. This is a plea from Claire Kivelham. She is Head of Outreach Projects at Dogs Trust, <coughs> and she's saying charge rent rules or change the rent rules for pets as the uk's largest dog welfare charity dogs trust believes that the benefit of pet ownership shouldn't be exclusive to homeowners but open to private and social renters as well with the number of people privately renting increasing year on year the news of the government is looking to make it easier for private tenants to have pets in their homes has never been more important. Sadly, the single biggest reason we see dogs handed in to our rehoming centres is due to a change in the owner's circumstances, such as being able to live in a rented property with a pet. This could also stop people coming forward to adopt rescue animals. This needs to change and we sincerely hope the proposed updates to model tenancy contracts will help ensure that fewer owners are forced to give up their beloved pets and that more people are able to consider adoption. For over a decade, Dogs Trust has been working with landlords letting agencies and the property industry on this issue. It's important that any updates to the model tenancy contract are backed up with appropriate guidance for landlords on how much to put the changes into practice to make it fully effective and mutually benefit for all parties involved. We welcome the opportunity to walk, work along other animal welfare organisations 
organisations and the government to ensure this forthcoming change positively impacts the property sector and that more pet-friendly rental homes are becoming available. Thanks, Paddy. Now, this is the comment on the letter page and not unconnected with the letter read by Jules a few moments ago about excellent treatment in Worcester Hospital, which on which I will enlarge with an article when we get on to the Worcester articles. So here's the comment. More staff and beds are needed. As figures reveal that over 300 more patients were admitted to hospital every week in Worcestershire in 2018-19 compared to five years ago, it's clear the NHS needs both more beds and more staff to cope with this rising demand. But the key is recruiting the right employees. NHS digital data shows 155,555 patients were admitted to hospital at the Worcestershire Acute Hospitals NHS Trust in 2018-19. That was 16,533 more than during 2014-15 the equivalent of 318 extra patients every week. In the run-up to December's general election, the Conservative pledge, if re-elected, was to increase NHS funding by £20.5 billion per year by the end of five years. The key issue locally, though, is how Worcestershire's share of that money is spent. Clearly, we need more capacity at our hospitals, especially at A&E, in terms of both beds and staff. But just throwing money at the problem won't solve it. The lack of trained nurses and doctors ready to work within the NHS has been well documented. And so the government must prioritise spending on training. Mm, absolutely. Well, here we have a letter which is the um, Fair Point by Tom Banner. And the title there is Unsustainable Pressure on the NHS Will Only Get Worse. This week saw the news that residents are being advised to stay away from the A&E units at Worcestershire Royal Hospital. This is shocking, but sadly it's a sign of our times. Our NHS is under immense pressure due to increasing an ageing population, and there is no way the current system can be sustainable. We cannot carry on this way, and it isn't the fault of the staff at the hospitals, who have a duty of care to everyone who comes in. It seems like they are the ones who are hit hardest by all of this, working insane shifts and having to make the best of a dismal situation. For too long now, the NHS has been an overly top-heavy organisation, with too much management and not enough staff on the wars helping save lives. It has been described as having a rowing boat, sacking half of the oarsmen, hiring ten new coxes and expecting the boat to be just as fast. It can't carry on like this. More people will die unnecessarily because the doctors and nurses they need to see are already seeing more patients than they would reasonably expect to. As with so many issues facing Britain, the answer is financial. If the NHS were funded better and the money spent better, the pressures would be much less and the NHS will not be in such dire straits. That being said, it is easy to blame the government for underfunding the NHS, but the trust who manage its operations should take some of the blame too. I often see social media posts with messages along the lines of don't take the NHS for granted, but I think that it's a flawed message. 
Most people see the NHS as a vital institution in Britain and do value it. It is not the average member of the public who needs to be aware of how important the NHS is. It's the policy makers and those in government responsible for keeping the NHS alive. For anybody who is unconcerned with the imminent threat to free healthcare in Britain, go and have a look at hospital beds in the United States. Even for very minor hospital trips, patients are often faced with bills in hundreds or even thousands of dollars. We have free healthcare in Britain because it is recognised as a right, not a privilege. Let's keep it that way. Okay, this is another letter with a medical theme. It's about ME. And it's from uh, Sonia Chowdhury, the Chief Executive of Action for ME. Sir, many of your readers will know at least one of the 250,000 children and adults in the UK with myalgic encephalomyelitis, ME, also diagnosed as chronic fatigue syndrome, CFS or ME stroke CFS, though they may not see the devastating toll this serious neurological condition can take. A lack of research means that we don't yet know the cause or have an effective treatment, but a large planned genetic study could change that. With scientists and patients working together, the ME CFS Biomedical Partnership is applying for funding to test DNA samples from 20,000 people with ME. Readers can show their support for this potentially game-changing biomedical research and sign up for updates at um, mebiomed.org.uk stroke get involved. Thank you. Well, now we'll start the articles and I'm going to leap in and read the first article simply because it is, I think, the last that we will offer you on the Worcestershire Hospital NHS theme and it enlarges on the letter read by Jules a little while ago about a gentleman called Barry Parmenter who has been hospitalised recently and how he, he and his wife are so grateful to the Worcestershire Hospital for the treatment he received and it's headed Care Was Brilliant a wife has praised hospital staff for the way they cared for her husband after he had a heart attack. Barry Parmenter has been recovering at his Broadway home after spending New Year at Worcestershire Royal Hospital, with wife Jill saying he is now doing well. But, she said, it could have been a lot more serious if it had not been for the outstanding treatment the Broadway Parish Council Chairman received from NHS staff. Mrs. Parmenter, aged 78, said Councillor Parmenter's heart attack happened at their Lifford Gardens home on Saturday, December the 28th. He felt pains and we thought it was indigestion, she said. He phoned 111 and the operator worked out he needed an ambulance. They were outstanding. The ambulance crew stayed to see if he was all right. When I arrived at Worcestershire Royal, a team had been waiting for my husband and he was operated on immediately. He was in intensive care, but the doctor explained everything, showed me diagrams, showed me the care he was receiving. The doctors and nurses on ward CUU were absolutely wonderful. We cannot thank all the staff enough. Mrs. Parmenter said, after the operation went well with a stent inserted, the councillor was then able to return home and rest on New Year's Day. 
She added he was expected to miss January's council meeting, but would hopefully be resuming duties earlier in the new year. Mrs Parmenter said it could have been so much more serious. People talk about going private, but it was brilliant care. A spokesman for Worcestershire Acute Hospitals NHS Trust said, Our dedicated staff work day in, day out to provide the best possible care to patients. So we're delighted to hear that the outcome in Mr Parmenter's case has been so positive. We will be sure to share his thanks with the team involved in his care and we wish him well in his recovery. This is a plea for a new van from, uh, from who? The Worcester Street Cafe, which feeds the homeless. A street cafe which feeds rough sleepers in the city is pleading for uh, donations to help buy a new van. Nick Driscoll, who's 37 and runs the Worcester Street Cafe, alongside Kylie Kelly and Gemma Scott. They have launched a desperate appeal to get a new van as the cafe's current one is on the way out. Miss Driscoll said our van is seriously poorly and we are now in a position that we need to replace it after numerous temporary fixes. We need a van to carry our hot water urn, tables and all the equipment to Copenhagen Street where we feed our homeless and vulnerable. It is not sustainable for us to carry such a large number of items in our cars. The team wants to raise £4,000, saying their previous van, which was given to them by M. Pinches and Sun Transport in 2018, is no longer safe for use. Mr. Driscoll said, Pinches did donate a van to us last year. We were really lucky, but the electrics have gone. We have some funds, but these have been raised to provide food for the homeless and we wish to remain fully transparent with what we are fundraising money for. We need to raise between 3000 and 4000 to get a reliable, decent van and I will update it daily with the total amount raised. We need to raise some funds, ASAP, to get us another van as we will struggle without one. If you feel able to make a donation to help towards replacing the van, we will be extremely grateful. The group has already raised £550 uh, through its online crowdfunding page for the van. You can donate on www.gofundme.com or find the Worcester Street Cafe on Facebook for more information. Four nights a week, the project sets up tables in Copenhagen Street and gives out hot drinks, freshly cooked meals and puddings cooked by volunteers or donated by local businesses such as Griggs. The cafe serves food between 7.30 and 8.30pm from Monday to Thursday. And she gives a contact number here, 01905 742 258, and her address is gemma.bufton at newsquest.co.uk. 
www.ecoe.uk so you can all offer your help okay here's some uh, here's an article concerned with uh, car parking problems concerned neighbours have objected to a secondary school's plan to expand its car park by 34 spaces over a fear that lights would shine on their homes and gardens a planning application has been put forward by Nunnery Wood High School in Spetchley Road in Worcester to build a 34 space car park as the oversubscribed school plans, school plans to expand by 150 pupils in the next couple of years. The school said it wants to expand its car park to avoid further issues on the already congested Spetchley Road, which is used by students and staff at Worcester Sixth Form College, County Hall and Worcester, Worcestershire Royal Hospital. Mark Scum, Director of Business and Operations at Nunnery Wood, said more spaces were needed to accommodate casual music teachers and part-time exam invigilators. He said, The new proposed plans will provide a much safer layout for access around the site as well as increasing the number of spaces available. In an effort to control the open nature of the site, it's proposed that the new parking will be access controlled at key times. This is vitally important to ensure that we can eliminate the issues which might force vehicles to start using the main Spetchley Road. Objector Royston Roberts of Spetchley Road said the school had not revealed whether it would be installing more lighting to cover the new car parking spaces and he was concerned more would cause light pollution near his home. He said car parking already exists on the site on the side and rear of the school, which is not fully utilised during the day. Why tarmac more grass when these spaces are available? Michelle Wickenden, also especially road, was concerned by more lighting polluting her home and garden in her objection. She also wanted to be reassured by the school about how it would manage the car park in the holidays and at weekends. Well, this article is the second in the theme of feeding those people who are needy, and it's from Wednesday, January the 8th. It's entitled, Record Numbers Rely on Food Bank. A record number of people were forced to rely on Worcester Food Bank to avoid going hungry over Christmas. The charity ended the year by feeding 1,150 clients during December, the most referrals it's handled during a single month since opening its doors seven and a half years ago. It was able to cope with demand thanks to a huge response from the local community, which saw almost 20 tonnes of supplies donated during the final countdown to Christmas. More than 600 disadvantaged children also woke up to a Christmas Day surprise to discover a gift after the food bank was swamped with donations of festive gifts. Graham Lucas, Worcester Food Bank manager, said, We predicted this would be our busiest ever Christmas, but that doesn't make it any less heartbreaking that so many people had to rely on the emergency food. Since the start of Universal Credit, we had a significant number of people who need to use the food bank. This is an issue across the county. There was a 22% increase of the amount of people who use the food bank in comparison to December 2018. Mm. Mr Lucas added, interestingly, there was also a 22% increase in the amount of food that was donated to the food bank. We are indebted to the amazing generosity of local people who had never wavered in their support of our efforts to end their misery and injustice of hunger. Staff and pupils at Bishop Perone CE College filled up the food bank with more than 3,000 items that the school collected during the countdown to Christmas. Worcester Food Bank is part of the Trussell Trust, a national network of food banks committed to community action against poverty. 
The emergency food parcels provided three days of food made up of ten nutritionally balanced meals. Those who are referred rarely need to visit a food bank more than two or three times. For more, visit worcester.foodbank.org.uk. Now quite a shocking article. Schools kick out 2,000 plus pupils. And the article is illustrated by pictures of two Worcestershire head teachers, Bishop Perone's Mark Pollard and Lindsay Cook of Hanley Castle High. Violent behaviour, drugs and alcohol issues are forcing thousands of Worcestershire school children out of education. Data from the Department for Education, DFE, shows a rising number of primary and secondary school children being excluded. NewsQuest's Data Investigations Unit analysed permanent and fixed term exclusions data from the DFE. The data shows that in Worcestershire state-maintained schools between 2017 and 2018, 2,850 pupils were excluded. Worcestershire was recorded as being one of the highest percentages of exclusions due to violence and substance misuse, with 39%, 1,124. This has increased from 1,082 in 2016-17 and 1,005 in 2015-16. 703 pupils were excluded due to a physical assault against a pupil and 323 pupils were excluded because of violence against an adult. There was a total of 98 school children who were excluded due to drug and alcohol related issues. Mark Pollard, head teacher from Bishop Perone CE College said It's not one that is replicated in our school specifically, although this might have something more to do with the journey of the school and the improvements we have seen overall in behaviour compared to a few years ago. Exclusions have fallen here in the same period. There is a pressure on schools to deliver an ambitious academic curriculum for all. And this means there is less flexibility to find appropriate courses, programmes and qualifications that interest some of the most challenging students. I would also suggest that there are increasing levels of social deprivation which can lead to real disengagement with school from some pupils and their families and there is the significant rise in the number of young people suffering with poor mental health which can impact behaviour negatively. Chris Keats, Acting General Secretary of NASWUT Teachers Union, has blamed the government for cutting specialist support for pupils with challenging behaviour. She claimed the government's actions have driven qualified and specialist teachers out of the profession and increased disaffection among pupils. 
however, mm -hmm. the Department for Education, DFE, said the government backs head teachers in using their powers to issue fixed period exclusions and to permanently exclude as a last resort. Lindsay Cook, head teacher from Hanley Castle High School, said, Schools need to provide a safe environment for young people to make mistakes and to learn from these mistakes in order to allow them to grow up into responsible citizens able to make a positive contribution to society. However, when this poor behaviour has a detrimental impact on other students and students who are violent or who have drug and alcohol related problems can have a very negative impact on the young people around them, schools correctly take action, including exclusion, to protect their wider school communities. Councillor Marcus Hart, cabinet member with responsibility for education and skills, said, School attendance and ensuring children reach their full potential within education are top priorities for the County Council. To exclude a child from school for any period of time is a last resort due to the impact this can have on all members of the school community. The most recent figures show children in Worcestershire have lost fewer days per exclusion in comparison to both national and local regional figures in the, in the last year. We are aware of the increase and concerns regarding exclusions in association with physical assault and drug and alcohol related incidents and will continue to work with members of the school community, children and families to closely examine the reasons behind the increase. We are committed to minimising permanent exclusions and ensuring the effective and consistent use of fixed-term exclusions as reflected in our Education and Skills Strategy 2019-24 in order to continually improve education for every child across Worcestershire. This is a piece of history by Paul Harding. <clears throat> in the latest in our local history series, Paul Harding from Discover History looks at when Charles Dickens visited Worcester. And it starts off, Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? <laughs> so imagine the scene. <clears throat> the corn market in the centre of Worcester is covered in fresh snow. People begin to pour into the public hall with a penny in their hand. It's Saturday and the hall is open for its popular Saturday penny readings. Inside Christmas greenery such as holly, ivy and mistletoe add to the beauty of this fine building. The public hall was a popular venue where people could hear music, sing songs and receive entertainment that didn't involve sitting in a pub and drinking. On Saturday evenings, authors could often be found sat in an armchair on the stage and reading from their own books. In 1867, the audience settled down to a winter ghost story. A man with a beard began with the words, Marley was dead to begin with. 
It was Charles Dickens, and he was reading from his popular 1843 book, A Christmas Carol. At Christmas, we see many adaptations of this popular story. So, what was our city like outside the public hall when Charles Dickens visited? In the 19th century, Worcester was joining the Industrial Revolution. The river, the canal and the new railway all saw many goods passing through. The cottage industry, whereby families created wool on hand looms, was now a thing of the past. Large brick buildings with machines and an army of workers was the new way of making consumables. Royal Worcester Bone China Works, Founds Gloves, Cinderella Shoes, Hardy and Padmore Iron Works, Leon Perrin Sauce and Hill Evans Vinegar Works helped the city excel in this new area. <coughs> Worcester had become a quiet batter, backwater after the death and destruction of the English Civil Wars. The Scottish occupation and the Battle of Worcester, 14-16-51, were ruinous for the city. Buildings were badly damaged and the looms and other wool manufacturing tools were looted or smashed during the final storming of the city. This industrial age began to restore the city's importance and put Worcester back on the map where it stood in the Middle Ages. However, problems plagued this new, fast-paced society. Criminals filled the city and the county jails, found in Friar Street and Castle Street, retrospectively. The destitute reluctantly went to the workhouse, and the poor inhabited the growing slums of Dolday, Copenhagen Street and Key Street. A huge number of people living in the slums still lived in damp, rotting, overcrowded medieval buildings with one outdoor privy for a number of homes. In turn, drinking water was taken from the old contaminated wells, buckets left in the yard filling with rainwater and even water drawn from the filthy River Severn, cholera epidemics became almost as seasonal as a common cold. Sir Charles Hastings, a surgeon at the Worcester Royal Infirmary, took great interest in the city and with the Board of Health began the task of improving the city. He also established the British Medical Association in 1832. The health report that was created is a horrifying read that could have been penned by Charles Dickens himself. It included descriptions of overflowing privies, putrefying matter oozing through the walls of homes from graveyards, and overcrowding living in the courts system. Improvement proposals were made from these shocking findings, but it took almost a century to implement. And there's a picture of the public hall, which was used as a music hall for many years. Vesta Tilly performed there, as did Sir Edward Elgar and Jenny Lind. Sadly, the public hall was demolished in the 1960s 
and the coal, whoops, the corn market car park in now occupies the site. Thank you, Paddy. I found that fascinating. Yeah. Okay, this is a, this is a very heartwarming story. It's headed by a, a photograph of a baby smiling because he's just heard his mother's voice for the first time. Okay, video footage captures the delight of 10-month-old Arlo Clark at hearing sounds after doctors at Worcester Royal Hospital fitted him with his first hearing aid. Mum Sarah said, The moment I saw that he could hear my voice, I had tears in my eyes. I couldn't believe that at last he could hear me. At first, he looked completely shocked. Then, once I started talking to him, he started to giggle and smile. Adrian, Arlo's dad, and I haven't been able to sing to him or have any of those special moments you typically have with newborns, but he hears all sounds now. Feeding times are a lot easier because I can call him and he hears me. We can sing and play with him now so we can finally interact with him. It's great to have our boy properly in our lives. Arlo was born with partial deafness in both ears, which his parents Sarah and Adrian Clark noticed at their home in St Peter's, Worcester. Behind the ear hearing aid was fitted to his left ear and he is due to have one for his right ear soon. A spokesman for Worcestershire Acute Hospitals NHS Trust said, We're delighted to hear the family is so happy with Arlo's care. We will be sure to share his family's thanks for the team involved in his care. And also another young Worcester boy uh, in more medical news. Um, this is from Tuesday, January the 7th. Um, and the title is Oscar Shaved Hair in Cancer Battle. A young boy with cancer is fighting back against the disease as he shaves his own hair. Oscar Saxelby Lee has been battling against acute lymphoblastic leukemia for over a year and is currently in Singapore receiving a new form of therapy, CART. The five-year-old from Worcester is receiving treatment which involves taking T-cells from his blood, which are then changed in a laboratory in the hope they will attack his cancer cells. It's now the second time Oscar has lost his beautiful locks, only weeks after regaining it all back. Along with a video of the young boy shaving his own hair, a post from parents Olivia Saxelby and Jamie Lee said, this time though, it's as if it's normal, his normal. Here he is shaving off the load that was causing too much discomfort. With not a care in the world, five years old, just trying his best to be in control. Just wow, I'm in absolute awe of him. The Facebook post said, this is a result of the toxic, toxic substances we put into our children, not the cancer itself. The only treatments available are the ones that deplete their health before it can even begin to improve. The moment his hair started to fall out was when it all became real. It was visible. He didn't look like a normal four-year-old. He looked like a boy with cancer. I just couldn't bear it. According to a story published by Channel News Asia, Oscar was relapsing and out of 100 cells in his bone marrow, Seven of them were cancerous. Mm -hmm. Associate Professor Alo Yu, mm -hmm. head of paediatric oncology at the National University Hospital, where Oscar is receiving his treatment, said, mm -hmm. when we have one cancer cell in 10,000, you know it's starting to relapse. Mm -hmm. You predict he would not respond to other treatments. It's very fast. These cells are even worse when they've seen all the chemotherapy, have evaded the bone marrow transplant cells in general. So these, to me, are sec uh, seasoned terrorists that would be in ready to destroy and kill him. For the video, log on to worcester.co.uk. Apologies, log on to worcesternews.co.uk. Next one is 
crackdown on noisy fireworks. A councillor has called for a crackdown on noisy or potentially dangerous fireworks being sold to the public. City and County Councillor Andy Roberts said residents in Warnden have been voicing their concerns about the unrestricted use of loud fireworks. Councillor Roberts said, the general feeling appears to be that the sale of fireworks should be restricted for use at licensed events and not to members of the public. Personally, I don't think it is appropriate for fireworks, which are very noisy or potentially dangerous, to be sold to the public. I'd like to see big displays licensed in a different way. The license procedure should limit the number of displays in the year within an area. Councillor Roberts says controls should be in place for the sake of people and animals who are upset by sudden flashes and loud bangs. He said there have been reports of upset animals and concerns expressed for people who are unwell or, for whatever reason, are distressed by loud bangs, though one person thought this was whining. Some fireworks could still be used more generally, such as crackers at the Chinese New Year celebrations. But in an era of ever greater environmental consciousness and rogue imports, tighter controls are needed. He is also campaigning for people who set off firework displays to be trained, adding, fireworks now are much more powerful, so it's also time to consider whether those who set them off should have some training. For those who enjoy the fireworks, spectacular and safe displays would still be available. I feel that the sale of chemical incendiary devices for use by untrained people who have no personal protection gear, is bizarre. It's also odd that in an era of greater environmental awareness, what was usually a November the 5th occurrence can now happen at any time during the year. Councillor Roberts says residents had complained about the New Year's Eve fireworks and how displays were set off all throughout the day. He has put forward a motion which would be discussed at the full County Council meeting on January the 16th. Mm. Councillor Roberts added, I want us to take the views of experts to find the best way forward. Personally, I might have put forward a motion, but like fireworks, these can make a lot of noise with no lasting result. He added, would the cabinet member with the responsibility for communities, that's Lucy Hodgson, seek information from Worcestershire Regulatory Services, the public health officer, chief fire officer, and whoever else she thinks appropriate, so that the council or council committee can consider what should be done and what should be done then to see that the concerns of the public are addressed. Well, this is unfortunately rather late. It's don't be sad when your tree is down for another year. It can be recycled at one of the household recycling centres across Worcestershire. <coughs> Some people even consider it's bad luck to keep the tree and decorations up more than 12 days after Christmas. 
but what do you do with your real Christmas trees once it's taken down? Whether you're following the Twelfth Night tradition or not, once your tree is down, make sure you take it to your nearest household recycling centre where it can be sent for composting. Residents can use any one of the 11 household recycling centres across Worcestershire to find out more. So please visit lesswaste-less.com. All the household recycling centres across the county are free for residents of Worcestershire to use and accept a wide variety of household materials for recycling as well as green waste. In addition to green waste, paper and card packaging, you can take along any extra plastic containers and cans that you can't fit into your recycling bin. Items you can take included unwanted electrical equipment, clothing, bric-a-brac, and bikes that can be reused by local charities. Councillor Tony Miller, Cabinet Member for the Environment at Worcestershire County Council, said household recycling centres are a great way to help the post-Christmas clear-up. Taking a trip to the local recycling centre can make sure the things you don't need anymore can go where they'll be of use, either by being recycled or gain a new lease of life, benefiting both local communities and the environment. Okay, this is um, about a tribute, really, to the former K's boss, Sir David Jones, who's died recently. A former K's employee has paid tribute to the man who saved next, Sir David Jones, who worked at the city firm. Michael Ashby from West Malvern, wrote to the Worcester News about his great sadness upon hearing mm. that the businessman had died aged 76. Mr Ashby wrote, I received the news of the death of Sir David with great sadness. To many people, Sir David was the man who saved next. My memory of the man is much earlier. I joined K&Co in 1968 and Sir David was my boss. Over the ten years... The next ten years, I learned a great deal about the man, his unstoppable determination and irresistible enthusiasm. Mr Ashby said that under Mr Jones's guidance, he became stock audit manager, saying, with this promotion, he instructed me that every door within the company was open to me, even his. I know that today, heaven's door is wide open for him. Rest in peace. Sir David was born in Malvern in 1943 and was the son of a watchmaker. He studied at the King's School, Worcester, and started out at Kays as a 17-year-old office junior, becoming finance director at the age of 26 and assistant managing director by 30. He moved to Yorkshire to work for Grattan in the 1980s before becoming involved with Next. He then took over, he, he then took over Next in the 1990s when it was on the brink of collapse, saving the business and turning it into the UK's third biggest fashion chain behind Marks & Spencer and the Arcadia Group of Shops, becoming chairman in 2002. In 2015, he appeared in court facing fraud charges after he was accused of forging a bank statement to disguise the fact that he'd borrowed £1.5 million. The trial was abandoned due to his ill health.
He also held board positions at both JJB Sports and Morrison's, despite being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease aged just 39. Kay's was one of Worcester's best-known retailers, existing in the city between 1890 and 2007, becoming one of the city's largest employers. Well, thank you, Dill, and you had the privilege of reading our last article for this evening, because now we've reached the end of this recorded edition. Thank you to Paddy, Jules and Dill, and to Barry, our engineer, for reading and recording. We hope you've enjoyed listening and that you'll come back for more next week. So best wishes from me, Evelyn, and from all the team. Goodbye. 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 Now, obituaries. Trevor John Clifford, known as Chopper, passed away peacefully at St Richard's Hospice on December the 23rd, 2019, aged 80 years. The funeral service has taken place. Maureen Cresswell, née Devlin, of Twining, beloved wife of Jim, much-loved mother, died on December the 28th at the Vale Hospital, Dursley. For funeral details, phone 07787 557143. Trevor Taliesin Davis, former head teacher at Bretford and Lee Street, Kidderminster, passed away peacefully at home on December the 18th, 2019, aged 77 years. The funeral has already taken place. Elizabeth Green, nay Hayden, Betty, passed away peacefully on December the 19th, 2019, aged 85 years. The funeral service will take place at Ombersley Church on January the 15th, 2020, at 1pm. Flowers are welcome. Sarah Elizabeth Lusk passed away peacefully at St Richard's Hospice on Friday, December the 13th, 2019, aged 54 years. The funeral service has already taken place. Desmond Eric Bradley passed away peacefully on December the 9th, 2019, aged 85 years. Funeral service at Worcester Crematorium on Wednesday, January the 15th at 12.15pm. Gordon Harris died peacefully at St Richard's Hospice, surrounded by his loving family on December the 26th, 2019, aged 86 years. Funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Wednesday, January the 15th at 1pm. Family flowers only, please. Mm-hmm. Ray Hyatt, formerly of the Bricklayers Arms, Park Street and The Crown at Poick, died peacefully in hospital on December the 27th, 2019, aged 82 years. Funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Wednesday, January the 15th at 11.30am. Family flowers only, please. Raymond Oscar Sears, Passed away peacefully at home on his 91st birthday on December the 29th, 2019. Funeral service at St Martin's Church, Holt, on Thursday, January the 16th 
at 12 noon, followed by internment at the churchyard. Flowers or, if preferred, donations to Sense, a deaf-blind charity. John James of Bromyard, formerly of St John's Worcester, passed away peacefully at Bromyard Community Hospital on December the 21st, 2019, aged 85 years. The funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Thursday, January the 16th at 11.30. Lorraine Payne passed away peacefully at Northwick Grange on December the 12th, 2019, aged 90 years. The funeral service will take place at Worcester Crematorium on Tuesday, January the 14th at 10.45am. Family flowers only, please. Iris Eileen Russell, nay Bourne, passed away peacefully at St Richard Hospice on December the 27th, 2019, after a long illness. Funeral service to take place at Worcester Crematorium on Tuesday the 14th of January 2020 at 1.45pm. Mary Betteridge of Claines passed away peacefully on December the 16th, 2019, aged 94 years. <clears throat> the funeral service is due at Worcester Crematorium on Monday, January the 13th at 1.45pm and there's a note for family flowers only, please. Margaret Harvey, formerly of Stolton and Pershaw, on December the 26, 2019, peacefully in Halbury House Care Home, Malvern, aged 92 years. The funeral service is at Worcester Crematorium on Thursday, January the 16th at 12.15pm and no flowers by request. Ma Malcolm Taylor of Ombersley passed away peacefully at home as he wished on December the 19th, 2019, aged 78 years. <clears throat> Funeral service will be held at St Andrew's Church, Ombersley on Man Monday, January the 13th at 10.30am followed by internment in the churchyard and family flowers only, please. <laughs> 